2: On News Radio six eighty WPTF,
1: and I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
3: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner,
1: and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Anthony, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can we help you?
4: I have a good amount of money saved up, and it's just kind of sitting there, and I've been trying to figure out what to do with it. And I heard you said you know you you are involved with. Investment strategy. So, I'm kind of in that situation where. What do you suggest I do with this money? Should I put it in the stock market, or are there other more effective ways to get the money to grow more rapidly than just having it sit there in my in in a checking account?
1: But there is a very big difference between just investments and financial planning. Uh, what well, financial planners such as We are the Lewis family. We include money management and investments, and we've been doing this for over 30 years.
3: I guess to begin with, Anthony, tell us a little bit about your situation. Are you single or married?
4: I am single. All right. And I I have a a well-paying job. Um, What's
3: your annual income?
4: It's $50,000. Okay. Age? Twenty seven.
3: All right. Anything in retirement plans?
4: Uh nothing like that.
3: So you don't have I a don't 401k have or any an IRA or anything? No, I do not. Okay. And any personal assets?
4: Um No, I mean just I have a, I own a car.
3: Okay. Yeah, no, I and meant it. um investment assets. No, this is great. Okay. Well,
1: that's a very good point to begin. <clears throat> When we begin financial planning, Anthony, we always look at, first of all, the financial statement of a client. And that financial statement is assets and liabilities, what you own and what you owe. So assets, which is what Deborah just asked you, fall into two categories. There are investment assets and use assets. A home would be a use asset. A car would be a use asset. A stock or a mutual fund would be an investment asset. So let's go forward a little bit and find out now, you say you've saved some some cash right now. How much do you have accumulated?
4: Um, $40,000.
1: Okay. That's very commendable, by the way. $40,000. And you want to know how to start an investment portfolio. Is that correct? Cor- correct, yes. Oh, all right. And the $40,000 is not in any type of retirement account like an IRA or a 401k. It's just in a checking account or a savings account. Correct. Exactly. All right. So the first thing we want to do is we want to realize that there are risk reduction methods of protecting your money at the same time giving you the best chance of the money growing. A couple of things that you don't want to do. You don't want to buy any annuities. You don't want to buy any life insurance products. You don't want to buy any uh, real estate
3: If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, dougandlinda.com. That's dougandlinda.com.
1: What you want to do is you want to find men like Warren Buffett, uh, money managers who are very successful in the world of investments, and then these managers... They manage what's called mutual funds. Are you familiar with the mutual funds?
4: I, someone has discussed with me the option of mutual funds. I don't know a lot
1: about them. So. All right. Well, picture a stock, which is a piece of paper, which has no value of its own. The only way you make money with this piece of paper is if you sell it for more than you paid for it. Right. That, that's a stock. doesn't matter whether it's a stock of IBM or whether it's a stock of Dunkin' Donuts. A mutual right. fund is... A giant pool of money where there is a manager who owns a whole bunch of stocks on behalf of all of the investors like yourself. So you put in your money, your forty thousand, somebody else puts in fifty thousand, and many of these mutual funds will have ten or twenty or fifty billion dollars and hold maybe a hundred stocks. And the manager is think Warren Buffett again, the kind of person who Decides which ones to buy and which ones to sell. So now in a mutual fund, you're betting on the manager, not the stock market and not the stock. So, So I think that's a lot safer for you to go ahead. Now, it is true that you might make more money by going out and buying a stock on your own. But by the same token, you have a much higher chance of losing your money. So we don't think you should do that. Now, the next thing you should realize is there are different kinds of mutual funds according to different kinds of risk. You want to be in mutual funds that have the least risk, but with the greatest growth potential. Right. And that's what we call growth and income funds. A growth and income fund is a mutual fund where the manager is restricted to only buying blue chip stocks of companies that produce dividends, which means they're successful companies like uh, General Electric, AT&T, IBM, and so forth.
3: And they tend to be bigger, older companies that have had years of history of uh, of having a dividend producing stock.
1: The second thing you want to realize is... You want to find mutual fund. You want to find more than one fund. I wouldn't put the whole 40000 in one fund. Even though a f- mutual fund diversifies by a bunch of stocks, I think you might be able to get maybe two funds or three funds. So now you have two or three different managers.
3: Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. 919-872-7000. 919 872
1: And third, you only want managers who are active managers, not passive. And what I mean by that is you don't want index funds where the manager just buys all the stocks in the particular index and you're sort of floating along, going up, going up down with the index. You want an active manager who has a track record that you're able to analyze before you invest.
3: And this track record should be that they, the manager, has been on that mutual fund so that the track record of the fund is that person's track record. You know, there's a lot of analysis that goes in, um, Anthony, and it would be my Uh pleasure. If we're not on the air, I can give you um, specifics. Um, But in general, these are very good guidelines for you and and other people. Um, But it's the manager. It's it's making the investment choice based on a person who's going to be buying and selling on your behalf.
1: Two other things that occur to me. Anthony, number one, you don't want ETFs. ETFs.
5: ETFs. Okay. Yeah,
1: you hear about them a lot in the press today. They get they they seem like they're a hot idea. Forget about it. They are a mutual fund look alike that trades on the stock exchange up and down, and so that's not what you want. You want something that is much more traditional and conservative. Other thing is what we call a pay yourself first plan. You're making fifty thousand a year. How much do you have surplus at the end of each month, or would you say what what do you have over your
3: living expenses? Yeah. You know, once you've paid the bills, what's left in checking?
4: Um, I should have looked into that. It's probably let's see, it's probably about a thousand
1: dollars. That's wonderful because at twenty seven, you have if you put that thousand dollars into a mutual fund every month for the next 40 years, it would shock you to see the how much- The multiple millions yeah, that you would acquire well, or accumulate. I don't want to use any numbers on the air. When you <laughs> when you come in the office and we do meet in the office, we would right. be happy to meet we with you. We can do a hypothetical. We'll, yeah, it depends upon what it's going to grow at, what True. the managers have done. But, but with you, 40
3: years, you have power. 40
1: years, the power is time. So if you write down our office number- 919- Okay. And you call the office, we will schedule a meeting to meet with you, and we will go ahead and take you through a financial planning session and lay out everything that we think you should do to where you can have your years laid out in a proper way.
2: Yeah, we really salute you. We think it's great that you've accumulated. And it it might be time to, you know, work with a financial advisor that can help you position this and educate you a little bit more uh, regarding your financial world.
4: All right, excellent.
3: All right, thanks, Anthony. All right, Anthony. I look forward to talking to you uh, either later tonight or tomorrow. Give us a call, 919-872-7000.
4: Thank you very much.
3: You're welcome. Have a wonderful week. You know, another question um, in regard to newlyweds uh, is, you know, some of the estate planning things that they will bring up. What kind of estate documents do I need is usually a good question. Linda, what would your advice here be?
2: Well, it's important to take uh, the following actions. Visit your human resources department. For most young adults, your employer manages both your life insurance and your retirement accounts. So, if you're a newlywed or you're getting married soon, then you may need to, to visit this HR department and update the beneficiary uh, designations for both the life insurance and your retirement accounts with the name of your new spouse.
1: Yeah, it's tragic when the widow or the widower discovers that the late spouse's parents are still named as a life insurance beneficiary because they never changed it. A simple change to the beneficiary designation form could have prevented that outcome.
3: Yeah. Doug, what would be your second essential uh, estate planning uh, directive for um, newlyweds?
1: Well, I like to think that you need to review life insurance itself, the needs, the life insurance needs. Workplace life insurance can be limited. If a couple depends upon having both incomes to pay for the rent or the mortgage or to maintain a certain marital lifestyle, then maybe... Additional life insurance could be warranted. And also, what's the cheapest kind of insurance to get? And in some cases, to to determine, we don't need any insurance. That's right. Uh, Maybe you have
2: uh, enough assets and you don't.
1: That's exactly right. So review life insurance. The third thing, though, is very important. Execute your wills. I see a lot of young couples that do not have wills. But even young newlyweds without many assets should execute basic wills that leave all assets to their spouse. Without a will, state law dictates where certain property passes when an individual dies, and uh, not all such laws leave 100% to the spouse, so I think it's very important to have a simple will.
3: Yeah. Here, additionally, if newlyweds have a prenuptial, which we were just talking about, they should execute wills to reflect the terms of that agreement also. It's important to understand that signing a prenuptial agreement is not enough. The estate plan must mirror what the agreement provides in the event of the death of a spouse. This is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Our number at the office is 919-872-7000. Call me at 919-872-7000. And Linda, what would you say is um, the fourth rule? A fourth rule is
2: get durable powers of attorney and a health uh, advance uh, directive.
1: Absolutely.
2: Marriage does not give a spouse the absolute right to make decisions for the other in the, in the event of incapacity. So to ensure that the spouse is the one who can make the medical and legal and financial decisions, each of the newlywed clients should execute a durable power of attorney and also a healthcare power of attorney or a medical advance directive. And then this will provide them with the ability to make decisions for one another in case of a tragic accident or any other unexpected incapacity. And in addition to make uh, to naming the other spouse under these documents, they, do, they should also name an alternate in the event of an accident where both of the spouses are injured.
1: Right. And I guess the last thing about newlyweds and what they should do, you know, many times these days we're finding individuals who have bought a home prior to marriage. So then after the wedding, it may be advantageous to change the home ownership from being owned by only one of them to both of them. Either could be joint property or tenants by the entirety, which can have the advantage of avoiding probate. So I think discussing the home ownership documents would be the last advice that I have for these newlyweds, steps
2: Well, you know, Doug and Deborah, I, w- I had another thought here as I was uh, reviewing uh, these points, that if... If as a young couple or a newlywed couple, if you happen to have drawn up for you, along with the will, if you have a revocable living trust drawn up, make sure to transfer any assets into the name of the trust. Wouldn't you say, Doug?
1: Absolutely.
2: So if you happen to have some investments that you own jointly or that maybe you... Someone gifted stocks to you. Make sure that you re-register those assets, those investments into the name of your trust and also any real estate like your home or a beach house. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewis Family on News Radio 680 WPTF. Call us at Lewis Financial Management during the week at 919 872 We'll be happy to answer your questions or make an appointment with you for your financial planning introductory meeting. Well, let's take another call.
1: This is Doug Lewis, Steve from Raleigh. How can I help you? How are you doing this evening? All right. Uh, question is, I'm age 25, just starting out basically,
5: um, have a salary, around 35 a year, and just wanted to know, in order to get started
4: with a financial planner, uh, what basic information you would need for me to uh, to do that process.
1: A financial planner should go ahead and request what we call the five keys. In our practice, Linda sends out a, a, a letter saying... Return the five keys, and those five keys are, and they should really come in before the first meeting, at least in our office. We ask them ahead of time. The first one is a statement of all your assets and liabilities. That's everything you own and everything you owe. It can be a regular financial statement or it can be written on a piece of yellow paper, but it's a list of all that you own and all that you owe. Okay. That's number one. Number two, a list of your living expenses. That's very Very important, and Linda usually sends out a form that will help you fill in a living expense sheet, but that's very important. Number three, income, a statement of what you expect your income from all sources to be for the current year. Number four, your tax return from last year. And the fifth key is your withholdings so far this year, either through quarterly estimates or through withholdings on your pay stub. Those five keys will give me as a financial planner or any other financial planner a, a an ability to get a snapshot of you and to decide uh, whether you need to go further with financial planning. If so, then the planner will want to see all the other things, insurance policies, wills, trust, business returns, uh, retirement accounts, and so on. Does that help, Steve? That sure does. You got the five keys. That's it. That's what I needed. And I, just call your office to get those. Yeah, Steve,
2: I can send you. you the packet. So if you'll call me at 872-7000, 872-7000, I'll be happy to send you some information and you know maybe you can get into some of the basics.
1: That'd be great. All right. Thanks, thanks for, for calling. Bye-bye. Thank you, Steve. Well, Lynn, what's new in the area of financial planning?
2: Well, Doug, I believe it would be helpful to our listeners if we could look at an actual case that has to do with this social capital issue. Right, Doug?
1: Well, you know, Lynn, that's, that's not a bad idea because social capital is the most dynamic term happening out there in the financial planning world today. If you like, we can go ahead and take uh, a case. Let's take the case of Raul and Inez Santiago. Now, I've changed their names, but this is a real case. The Santiago's started Santiago custom fabricators in their early thirties. They operated on a lean budget. They worked long hours and they performed many jobs to get the company going. And sometimes they wondered if they'd ever make it, but that was 30 years ago and they did make it. And now the Santiago's are 61 years old. Their company employs 48 people. They expect revenues to exceed $3 million this year.
2: And, you know, I guess even though they, uh, this couple discussed retirement in general terms over the years, they just never really sat down and talked about when they were going to retire and how they were going to make the move and what would become of their business interests. I guess essentially what happened, they just simply kept working and put off those questions for
1: another day. Right, Doug? Exactly. But that day came. It came last year when the Santiagos got a two and a half million dollar offer to buy their business. And that offer included $1.5 million for their stock in the business and another $1 million for a consulting contract and an agreement not to compete.
2: You know, Doug, the Santiago's knew that they would have to pay a capital gain tax of about $400,000 on the sale of the stock, you know, from their company. Right. Now, the other $1 million uh, that was given for Raul's consulting services and non-compete contract would be treated as $1 million of ordinary income.
1: And that would mean another $350,000 taxes in addition to the 400000 on the stock. That's a lot of taxes to have to pay. And the challenge, of course, Lynn, was...
2: After paying the tax on the sale of the stock, the Santiago's would end up with only about $1.1 $1. 1 million. And this amount would produce about 86000 per year of income, a far cry from their current... $180,000 combined uh, earnings. But they agreed that they needed at least $150,000 of income to be comfortable. And there was no way that they could arrive at that amount by selling the company. So they told the buyer no and they just walked away from the deal. Right, Doug?
1: And that was a hard decision to make, to turn down an offer for $2.5 million. But it was a tough decision to make, Lynn, because here they were making 180000 a year on their business. Right. If they sold the business and invested what was left after paying taxes, their income would drop from 180000 a year to 86000 a year, and they couldn't live on it. And so they really had a dilemma, and they had to say no to the buyer. But shortly afterwards, a professional tax advisor like myself suggested they consider a strategy by which they could sell the business and bypass altogether the capital gains tax. This strategy uses the charitable remainder trust ...as the special instrument to do it. Call our office during the week. Area code 919 That's eight seven two seven thousand.
2: And, you know, I guess essentially what they did, uh, the Santiago's were skeptical at first... But they did agree to meet again with a financial advisor to discuss this matter in in further detail. And after the meeting, the advisor who had training and experience in setting up CRTs explained how a charitable remainder trust is a tax exempt trust into which the Santiago's could transfer their corporate stock. This stock could be then sold inside the trust without paying any taxes at all. Right. And at the same time, the Santiago's would begin to receive a stream of income for their lifetimes. Right, Doug?
1: Not only that, Lynn, at their death, the assets remaining in the trust pass to a charity of their choice or a family foundation, and their children still receive a generous inheritance. Now, working out the Santiago's case was beautiful, but it bases itself on this matter of social capital. Establishing a charitable trust like the Santiago's did and like so many other people have done, causes people to discover this powerful concept called social capital.
2: You know, Doug, social capital is that part of our wealth that we just simply cannot keep. For example, as you think about your estate, which is the income plus net worth, you can see that it consists of two parts. First, there is your personal financial capital, and this is the wealth that we spend and that we give to our heirs. And this is the wealth that you keep.
1: Right, Doug? Right. That's the part you do keep. But what's left? What's left is the second part, the wealth you can't keep, the wealth that you can't spend and what you can't give to your heirs. This wealth we call social capital because it is destined by law to go to social uses beyond you and your family, like supporting education or social services and a host of other needs that are common to us all.
2: And typically, we give up our social capital in the form of taxes, and we let it go with that. But when we do, we also give up the control of that wealth. Right, Doug? So if I guess, Doug, essentially, if you have a sizable estate and you've got to pay these estate taxes. Well,
1: most people just give it up and figure there's no choice. But, you know, if you take a glance at the federal budget, you will instantly be aware of the fact that there's very little understanding of where your social capital goes and virtually no control at all over how it's used. But there is another alternative. There is another alternative in which we can part with our social capital, but not give up the control of its use.
2: And that way is to establish a charitable remainder trust. And as used by the Santiago's, a charitable remainder trust turned what would have been tax dollars spent at the government's discretion into charitable gifts made to specific organizations and causes that the Santiago's chose. Right, Doug?
1: Exactly, Linda. You know, the Santiagos ended up having their cake and eating it too. They got all the income they wanted. The kids got the inheritance they wanted, and they didn't have to go ahead and pay the taxes, and the entire sale of two and a half million ended up in this trust producing income for them. A lot of our listeners have the same choice, Linda. You know, you can learn about it if you get if you if you set your mind to doing so, or you can just go ahead and contact someone like us, call our office during the week. That office number is 872 That's 872 That's in Raleigh, area code 919
2: Doug, Joanne had a question, and she was wondering, what is a simplified employee pension plan?
1: Well, they're commonly called SEPs, Linda, or I-R-A SEPs. A SEP is a plain vanilla pension plan designed for small businesses Its main attraction is simplicity, at least compared with a regular corporation's or corporate pension plan. A SEP lets you, the business owner, contribute up to 15% of each participating employee's income into a tax-deferred retirement account. Now, she has to make a contribution for every employee of hers, including herself, who is older than 21 years old and has worked for the last three years or three out of the last five years, The way you do it, Linda, each employee must have a separate account, and those are separate IRAs. If she happens to have one employee, a secretary, and that secretary is older than 21, and that secretary has worked for her three out of the past five years, then she's got to, say, take 15% of her income, her salary, and put that into an IRA for the employee. If she's got five employees, and they've all been there three years, and they're all over over than 21, then she puts in 15% of their income, but the big... Attraction is that it's for the self-employed. You can start a SEP IRA very easily. You can actually start it, Linda, after the year is over. You can start it as late as April 15th for the previous year and still get the tax deduction.
2: How much does that reduce your taxes by? Let's say someone had an income of 100000
1: If a person had an income of 100000 then they can only put into it 15% of their income, so fifteen percent of a hundred thousand would be about fifteen thousand dollars. Actually, it reduces a little bit beyond that because it's fifteen percent after the fifteen thousand has been taken away. So it comes to be about thirteen point oh four percent, or say say thirteen thousand dollars, that'll make it simple for us. That thirteen thousand dollars that you put into this SEP IRA is gonna reduce your taxes by about four or five thousand dollars. Now, if a person made two hundred thousand dollars, then they could put in about and that would reduce their income by about $8,000.
2: So that is one of the strategies that people, especially that people that are self-employed, can use to reduce their taxes, right?
1: Any self-employed individual who is not using a SEP IRA, in my opinion, is wasting one of the best deals the government has ever given you.
2: Okay, I have another question that someone asked me. I get some people that call in that own their own businesses, and sometimes they are set up either as an S-corp or C-corp, And they're not sure whether the corporation that they've established is the right one for them. Uh huh. What's the difference between having an S-corp or a C-corp?
1: Well, there are pros and cons, Linda. The pros of a C-corporation, let's take those first of all. Okay, that's a regular standard corporation. All right, a C-corporation, the real advantage or advantages are, number one, you can do things that you can't do with an S-corporation. You can invest in certain things. You can invest in tax shelters, the oil and gas tax shelters, all of those. The disadvantage to the C corporation is you got to keep two sets of books and file two tax returns. There are also retirement plan benefits that you can do with a C corporation's retirement plan when you set up one that you can't with an S corporation's retirement plan. And there's some borrowing. Okay. Now, over on the S corporation, the advantage is that you only file one tax return. Number two, the advantage is it's much simpler because of that, no cost involved, and everything flows through. The disadvantages of the S-Corporation are that you can't get the tax shelters that you wanted to before, and you can't borrow from your retirement plan.
2: Well, thank you, Doug.
1: For any other questions you may have, call my office during the week. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. David, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
5: How y'all doing? All right. Good. I have a question for you. Uh, last year we, uh, just got our house. It took us quite a while to save for the house. And now that we've, uh, we moved in, now we're looking toward, uh, saving for retirement. Good. And, uh, college education for our five year old daughter also. Oh. And, uh, you know, I'm in, currently in a 401k program at work. Mm hmm. And I guess what I'm trying to do. Is see the best way to to do that in terms of you know you hear about stock, mutual funds, and bonds and annuities, and I guess my question to you is is also the EE e savings bonds for college education that they say if you make a certain amount that it might not be tax deductible if used for college, and where do you find answers you know like this?
1: Well, uh, without sounding egotistical, you're talking to the answer man. (laughs) Uh, That's what a certified financial planner does. He answers the question. So uh, without sounding a little um, brash or anything, you need to find a certified financial planner to go ahead and answer answer those questions. How how old are you, David?
5: 34.
1: You're 34 years old. What's your income?
5: Oh, total about 120. 120,
1: 120,000. That's husband and wife? Yes. All right. Um, Now, excuse me. You say you're funding a 401k plan. How much is going into the 401k right now?
5: 15%.
1: 15%. Why 15%? Uh
5: that's my maximum allowable. All
1: right. Uh and number 2, where are they going? What what in what uh what
5: vehicle?
1: What vehicles are you placing them in?
5: Uh a growth account.
1: Uh-huh. Both of them going into a growth account. Right. Is there any match on them?
5: Haven't been yet.
1: All right. So none, nothing is being matched. No. Okay. Uh now, do you know what your living expenses are running you? Have you done a, an expense analysis of any sort? N- not per se. Oh,
5: yes and uh- no.
1: All right. Uh, that's going to be very important. Before you meet with, uh, with any financial planner, you should have some help getting some of those numbers on paper, even at ballpark estimates. Before I meet with any clients, Linda knows that I insist on having a cash flow, just a living expense sheet filled out, which we send clients and have them take a best shot at it. Mm-hmm. One way is to look at your last three months checkbook. Right. Uh, what about your investment program right now? How much have you accumulated um, outside of your 401k in different types of investments? Well, I
5: have it in, in a growth fund. Outside of work, it's a growth fund and a corporate bond
1: fund. All right. So how much is in your growth fund? About
5: 1500
1: Only 1500 Yeah. That's the total amount? Yeah. All right. And how about in the bond fund?
5: About thirteen.
1: Well, all right. Let me see if I understand this. You're making 120000 a year, mm-hmm. and you've only saved th- less than $3,000? Just started. Okay. See? Where's the money been going before?
5: Saving for a house.
1: I see. Okay, so everything before everything that you'd accumulated up until now was put into the house and now you're starting from scratch. Exactly. I got you.
2: Exactly. I'm wondering what's the value of your house?
5: The value of our house? Mhm. 150.
1: Oh, okay. A couple of things, just quick observations for you. Mm-hmm. Uh forget double E bonds. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're they that's a losing deal. Okay. okay? So they, they shouldn't be any part of a 34-year-old's picture making 120000 a year with a 5-year-old. Mm-hmm. Okay, forget that. Yeah, you shouldn't be in any, in, in any bond fund at your age. I see. Uh, you're over-contributing to your 401K. Okay. You shouldn't be contributing uh, 15% at this point if all you've accumulated. You need to go ahead and approach it. The, the 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 starting point needs to be the expense analysis.
3: This is Deborah Lewis, call 919-872-7000 to set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation. Call me
1: at 919-872-7000. For example, if you're making 120,000 a year and you, you only have one child? Uh, yeah. Okay, so it's just the three of y'all. Right. Okay. So maybe let's say you're spending 50,000 or 60,000 a year. Mhm. All right. Well, that says that you should have 4 or 5,000 a month excess. Right. And if that's the case, then we need to balance how much is going to be accumulated inside the 401k and how much could be uh available outside the 401k, mm-hmm. right in your own personal name. Yes. And 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 by the way, I would not put anything in the name of your daughter. Is it a daughter or a son? Daughter. In your name of your daughter for college education, those accounts are called UGMA or UTMA, Uniform Gift to Minors Act or mm-hmm. Uniform Transfer to Minors Act accounts. I would not put anything in her name because of a, another problem you'll face at the rear end. the uh, The reason is that with a five year old and twelve years to accumulate, it may be that you will have accumulated several hundred thousands of dollars for her education. And if it's in a Gift to Minors Act account, although it does have some tax benefits to you mm-hmm. along the way, it also is an enormous temptation for an 18 year old to say she's not going to college and she's found this wonderful sailor who she'd like to help, uh, uh, who knows, go AWOL or something like that. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just too big a temptation for a youngster. And, uh, and even the 21 year old limits on the UTMA, I think, are too much. Better to keep it in your name, uh, and then, There's another thing that may happen. You may find using the college loan programs are the best way to get her through school and to give her a little start uh, with some credit when she finishes. Mm -hmm. And then you would use what you'd accumulated for your own retirement fund. You see what I'm saying? If it's Mm -hmm. in your name. Mm -hmm. But really, you've got to go ahead and get a handle on the expense portion first, then the balance, and then you want to go ahead and work with a financial planner to work backwards. In other words, you need to get the final two goals that you're trying to achieve. For example, once you've got your present living expenses, what we do in our office, we do a living expense analysis today. Then we go ahead and project the future when the person wants to retire or be uh, financially independent, able to retire, and get the expenses at that point in time and work backwards again to find out how much needs to be set aside from now until then to be able to make sure they can make it. hmm We do the same thing with college education. What's the kind of school? Do we want a private school or a public school? And then what's the cost today? Inflate it 12 years in your case to what it's going to be then. Mm -hmm. Then work backwards how much needs to be set aside now monthly to be able to make it. And then we set up a pay yourself first automatic investment plan, working towards those two goals, and then decide what kinds of vehicles. In your case, you should not be in bond funds for sure. Mm -hmm. The question would be whether you're in growth in income funds, Growth funds, uh, small cap funds, or international funds, or some of all four. Okay. Does, does that give you a little way to start? Doug,
2: okay. I was wondering, did you address the issue? Uh, David said that he's contributing fifteen percent to the four hundred one k. What is the max that you would
1: well, recommend that he? If he had a If he had a a match, then I would say that. But he says there is no match. Not yet. All right. So, so- when when they institute a match. Then that's as far as I would go. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are tax benefits for uh, um for the accumulation, both for the tax deduction not being taxed on that amount of income now, mm-hmm. plus there is the uh, tax benefit of accumulating in a tax deferred status.
2: So the fifteen percent would be, would you would you advise him to continue?
1: I th- well, I think uh, it seems to me he's over contributing, but until I know, in other words, I'd want to see. Let's say that he ended up with fi- with a six thousand dollars surplus monthly. Then I wouldn't mind three thousand going over to four hundred one k, three thousand coming over here. Or if we're going to have to go ahead and fund both college education and retirement, yeah. I'd like to have maybe you know uh, uh, two, two, and two or something like that.
2: Right. How much are you contributing to that growth fund and the corporate bond fund currently? A month, on a monthly basis, uh, yeah. I just started that off with two hundred. Oh, okay, so you're doing two.
1: Yeah, well, see, he's, he's, his numbers are all out of whack, but it's because he hasn't got a handle on his expenses just yet. Right, We've right. got to get the expenses. It doesn't make sense, $120,000. Accu- so somewhere the expenses are the starting point, Lynn.
2: Yeah, if you'd like me to send you that uh, worksheet, I'll be happy to do so. Uh, okay. Just call me at the office. Okay. And that number, David, is eight seven two seven thousand in Raleigh. That's 919-USA-7000. Okay, very good. All right, and thank you for calling.
1: Bye-bye now. Well, Linda, what's the big news? in retirement planning.
2: Well, Doug, maybe you could discuss some of the savings goals that people should have at different uh, ages and stages of life.
1: Good question, Lynn. A lot of people want to know how much should they be saving for their retirement, and what a, what is the average person at their income or their uh, marital status save? Of course, there's no hard and fast rules, but across the nation, the individual single person with no children is saving 15 to 20 percent of his income for investments. And then uh, the single person with children, somewhere in the 10% to 15% range. So that's a good target for the single person with and without children. What about uh, if a person is married? Well, a married individual, one wage earner family, he should be saving between 10 and 15% of his income if he has no children. If the married into family with one wage earner has children, then 10% of their income is what the average across the nation is.
2: And what about if both parents are are working? Well,
1: financial children? planning, Linda, for two-wage earners with no children, we call that financial planning for dinks, dual income, no kids. By the way, one income, no kids, are oinks. Okay? Okay. <laughs> All right. But financial planning for dinks, dual income, no kids, 20% to 25% of your income is what your peers are saving across the country. If you happen to have children, two-income family. With children, 15%.
2: Doug, what about folks that are retired? Usually uh, their money's tied up.
1: Actually, Linda, believe it or not, retired folks are saving almost 5% of their income per year. And so those are the good targets that you can go ahead. If it means something to people, you should be. So if you're at any stage of life, it's never too late to start saving. Yeah, the real key, Linda, of course, is to get into the habit of paying yourself first. You know, saving money requires discipline, discipline that's sometimes hard to acquire. In the end, however, those people who have mastered this discipline will win because they've been able to accumulate the wealth necessary to satisfy their own financial objectives. And the habit of paying yourself first at the beginning of the month and then living on what remains each month, that's the key. Of course, unfortunately, Linda, most of us do what?
2: Ah, uh, Well, you... Uh, you spend and then you look at what's left over.
1: (laughs) Right. There's always too much month, not enough money.
2: Living on what remains after you've put something away for a rainy day is a better way to look at things, right?
1: It really is. And it's a way to get a painless process happening where you're paying yourself first.
2: And Doug, I think it's important for our listeners to remember that if you have an issue such as a retirement issue that you're not sure about, Work with a financial planner that can help you get these questions answered to your specific uh, situation.
1: Absolutely. You need to find advice. It's your future, and it's only your financial future. You need to take care of it.
2: If you'll call during the week, I'll be happy to send you some information. That number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. What I'm finding when I speak to a lot of people on on the phone that call in at the office is that there are so many individuals in the state, and families in the state, that they have sizable estates and they haven't taken the time to analyze, to get some financial planning advice, if you will, before they go into the estate planning. People desperately need to take an accounting of what do they have, where is it all at, What's it doing for them? And if it's producing the proper income, right? And then looking at the estate planning. Do you understand what I'm saying, Doug?
1: Yeah, what you're really saying is financial planning focuses on five or six key areas. And that's exactly right. If we look at financial planning as six basic areas, we'll get a lot of help, Linda. Number one, there is cash flow planning. Number two, there's tax planning, income tax planning. Number three, there's retirement planning. Number four, there's the issue of investments, the investment portfolio. Number five, there's the question of insurance needs. And number six, there's estate planning. Now, these six areas, and in some cases, there's a seventh area, which we call the other areas like education of children, but if we look at these six areas of a client's life first and analyze them, we should always remember to focus on the life estate before the death estate. We should always focus on where are you at today? What are your living expense needs? What is your income that's coming right now to support those needs to make sure that you will never outlast that income? That's very crucial. Before dealing with the estate, we need to deal with the question of are your assets, is your investment portfolio producing enough income to support you at your present lifestyle and grow faster than inflation. That's the first issue that has to be addressed. Then after we go through the living expense needs and the investments meeting that need and so forth, then we can come to the question of the death estate. What happens after I die? And then we deal with the question of estate planning. We do need to run an analysis. Once we've covered the living issues how to support myself during my retirement and arm, am I all right? And so forth. Then we can come over to tie the other one in. It may be if they do not have enough income from their investments right now and are spending down their principal or spending something other than the income off their investments. It may be, we can increase in many cases. We're doubling the income from investments. As you know, people who are living off of CD interest.
2: Yeah. I've had so many people call it, especially some of our widows and, You know, they're trying to be good stewards of what their husbands have left them, and and they call in and they say, well, I'm just not getting the income that I need, that I used to have, and that I need. And so they really want to reposition the CD.
1: Once we've addressed how to increase the income, then we come to the more sophisticated estate planning strategies. So this is the kind of way we have to approach it after you deal with the first issue of the life estate.
2: Right, Doug. I I would really like to uh, (laughs) encourage all of our listeners, don't procrastinate. People really need to do planning, and most people plan to plan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm planning on doing it, but I haven't quite gotten to it. And then when you sit down and discuss with them, uh, what do you have? Well, I know I've got some money in the retirement, but I don't know how much it is. And, well, then there's the bearer bonds, and and then there's, I remember there was one lady that had $80,000 in a box, and her daughter was telling me about this, and the woman, they were going to come in and see us, and... Do some planning and then transfer out assets and then, you know, the lady died. But people need to really plan. They need to look at their situation. And if you're out there listening, make yourself a resolution that you're going to do yourself a favor, your family a favor, and your children a favor. You're going to do some serious financial planning. Have someone that's certified look at your numbers, look at your situation, and do some serious financial planning. If you would like to call the office at eight seven two seven thousand eight seven two seven thousand, I'd be happy to send you some information that might give you some uh, a better idea regarding the financial planning process. Doug, can you think of any issues that we can discuss regarding investments?
1: Investments? Well, Lynn, I guess the big topic these days is asset allocation. Asset allocation, asset allocation, asset allocation. Everybody is talking asset allocation. Well, what exactly is asset allocation? Well, it's a fancy term, Linda, for deciding how to set up your investment portfolio, how to allocate how much money should go into one type of investment versus another versus another. In the world out there amongst investment advisors, there are three basic methods of asset allocation. And what are those three methods? Well, the first method is the single investment, safest investment type. And this method is very often talked about by insurance agents and people who like to sell treasury bonds and T-bills. And the philosophy goes like this, let's find the safest investment possible and put 100% of our money into this investment and not worry about it. Maybe it's a guaranteed annuity Or maybe it's into a treasury bill.
2: Mm -hmm. I've heard that time and time again. Let's put it in CDs. Let's put it in T-bills.
1: Right. I don't like this method for one reason. And that is that we don't really know what's the safest investment, quote unquote, until after something went wrong. And if you've been in this business long enough, as I have, you can tell a horror story about every one of these so-called safe investments. So I don't like this method. And the second method is the diversification method. And the diversification method is not putting all your eggs into any one basket. And we will try and allocate how much goes in low risk versus how much goes in high risk investments. I don't like this method either because we really don't know what's going to be high risk and what's going to be low risk. We can put more money in the so-called low risk and turn out afterwards that it was the high risk and we lost it. And I know story after story after story, so I really don't like trying to second guess what's going to be high risk and what's going to be low risk. The third method is the one I prefer, and that's called diversification using the uniform unit size. And here we allocate equal risk to every investment in the portfolio, and we pick a dollar size, a unit, Let's say it's $10,000 and every investment in the portfolio will be $10,000 and we will not try and second guess where to put more money or where to put less money. And in this method, we are spreading our risk equally over every investment. No matter how attractive an investment, we're going to limit it to that $10,000 size or if it's a $20,000 unit size or $40,000 or whatever the unit size is, that will be consistent. And that's the method of asset allocation that I prefer these days, Linda.
2: After listening to the show, if there's some question that's been on your mind that you need an answer about, I'll be happy to do what I can to help you and just call the office. The numbers to call during the week are area code 919 8727000 That's 919-USA-7000.
1: Hello, Jim. Yes. How can I help you? This is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. All right. Uh, I have a trust that's
6: supposed to be started after I die. I'm told that I could have one before. I die. Uh, is that correct?
1: Yes, you can set up trust before you die, and you can set up trust at your death. They're called testamentary trust or intervivos trust.
6: All right. If I, I open up one before I die, and I set a certain amount of money aside, that money can't be taken out, or can it?
1: And you can do it either way you want, Jim. You can set up a revocable trust, which allows you to put the money in the trust. And then you can revoke it and take the money out again, or you can make it an irrevocable trust where you put your money into the trust and you can't get it out again. You can do them either way. What's your objective, Jim? There are different it might consequences. Be
6: more suitable for me to put some stuff in a trust now.
1: Why'd you want to put it in a trust?
6: Just so it'll be safe. So it'll I, wouldn't, be... Wouldn't, I wouldn't be bothering it. I wouldn't be using it for one thing.
1: You mean sort of keep it out of your hands so you can't be tempted to spend it? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, there are spendthrift trusts, and uh, you can do that. What you want then is you want an irrevocable trust. Who do you want the money to go to?
6: Well, it would go to my daughter.
1: I wanted to go to your daughter. How about your wife?
6: Well, I don't have a wife any longer.
1: All right. Uh, what's the size of your estate? Let's talk about taxes for a second because that's crucial in talking about trusts.
6: In cash, it would probably be around 40000 of course, I've got uh, oh, about two hundred fifty thousand in real estate,
1: and that's I the total. I the-
6: wouldn't want to put the real estate in a trust now.
1: You would or would not? I would not. All right. Well, let's put it like this: if that's the total value of your estate, two hundred ninety thousand, including everything you own, yeah, then there's no tax benefit for you to put it into the trust. There's not because a hundred percent of your estate will be sheltered. On the other hand, if you want to make sure that it goes to your daughter irrevocably, you can start giving it to her now if you want. Mm-hmm. Actually, though, you could give her the whole forty thousand because all you're doing is giving up some of the uh, of the estate uh, credit, and 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 you don't need it. That would be a gift. That'd be a pure gift. Are there,
6: is any tax would she be taxed for that?
1: No. I will say this, by the way, the real estate, if it's growing in value. How old are you, Jim?
6: Fifty-nine.
1: Well oh, you're a young man. Uh, if you're going to be around a few more years, that real estate might be growing in value. Sometimes you can go ahead and gift the real estate to the trust, and then you keep the value from appreciating in your estate.
6: All uh, right. Well, let, let me ask you this. Go ahead. Uh, I, I've got some land that I'm going to have to pay award and sue assessment on. Uh, comes in the neighborhood of $10,070. Uh-huh. Uh, can I get that as a tax write-off?
1: Paying the assessment?
6: Yeah, paying the assessment.
1: Well, let's see. Is the is the property investment property?
6: Uh, yes. I, well, I bought it for an investment.
1: I think you might be able to go ahead and claim it as investment expense. I'd want to do a little research and check on that one for you, but I think you might be able to.
6: That, that would be federal and state or just...
1: No, you'd take it on both. If it qualifies for investment expense then you'd take it on both because your state taxes now you start at the bottom line of your federal and you go up to the top line of your state.
6: Uh-huh. Okay. I think you've told me about what you're I- sure
1: welcome, Jim. If you'd like any more information, give me a call at my office during the week. My office number is eight seven two seven thousand, and I'll be happy to get you some more information. All right. Sure. Welcome. Thank you very much. Doug. Thank you, Jim. Well, that's all the money matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake.